Carolyn Osorio, and this is Pippi Mama, Life Outside the Cookie Cutter. In each podcast, I will be serving up a generous portion of inspiration, family style, to feed our dream appetites. I share stories of inspiring people who have one thing in common. They never listen to naysayers. They don't worry about what other people are doing, but what feels right outside the cookie cutter. Wherever that story leads me, I am compelled to tell it. scoop here is anyone who has ever watched Jim Dever as a reporter and co-host on King Five's evening magazine understands he's like a breath of fresh air. He's a storyteller now more than ever in this age of no news is good news and if it bleeds it leads, Dever definitely approaches a fireside chat outside the cookie cutter. Okay, so we're at Safeco Field. Yes. I wanted to meet with you here because I think you're just like the Seattle guy and plus I saw you <laughs> <laughs> I saw you being a bat girl. Yeah, and... it, it was uh, the, a ball girl, actually. A ball girl. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, this is returning to the scene of the crime for me. Yes, I tried <laughs> to be a Mariners ball girl, and it did not end well. Okay. First of all, I'm not a girl. That's. <laughs> well, how come you didn't try to be a bat boy? Because there's like a diff- there's like a bat boys yeah. and there's ball girls and right. one can they cannot go into each other's domain right right it's kind of like each has their place and everybody's yeah. happy but um no i think that would be too obvious <laughs> <laughs> so i decided to go the outside outside route the, on the whole thing yeah right which is perfect yeah. because we're talking about pippy mama life outside the cookie cutter yeah and you are definitely living outside the cookie cutter i think you have more um titles after your name than I do between like what you're like a reporter uh Elvis impersonator uh, <laughs> yeah well that's that's for fun yeah well yeah I think I think if you want to live life to the fullest you, you don't want to call yourself any one thing yeah. plus I'm not particularly good at any one thing so yeah. if I keep moving around I can fool people into thinking that <laughs> oh he's just multi-dimensional it's not that he hasn't exceeded excelled in any one category it's just that he's multi-dimensional so and there is something to that too if you specialize you can become the best at whatever that one thing is like i should have probably ch- chosen to be a rapper and devoted <laughs> ten thousand hours to that you know i could be macklemore but um instead i instead of doing the ten thousand hours thing i kind of go like a thousand here a thousand there yeah. <laughs> you know but do you find that like seriously like all kidding aside like for me, it would be impossible to do just one thing that would just, right. are, are you of that personality? Where I think so. It's just that you, you start feeling cagey if you have to do like one thing and one thing only. Yes. Like where does that come from within it, you? I don't know. Cause even my primary one thing, which is my, my day job at, yeah. at evening as a host and a reporter and a producer. Yeah, I guess they all kind of, <laughs> but you see, I guess I'm making my point here is that each even that job is so multidimensional that it suits somebody with a short attention span very easily. You can do something different every day, which is so great. So for people who have that, and it sounds like when I was doing some research, you've created a lot of the opportunities yourself. When you're, uh, you know, like I think you created, you did a show with a kid's show mm-hmm. that That's true. Um, that was like an award-winning show for like five years and you pitched that and created that. Yeah, um, along with Mimi Gann, who is okay. a, a uh, frequent creative partner of mine. She, okay. We shared an office at King. Mimi and I were both reporters on Evening. And we would 
you know, you, as people tend to do with their coworkers, you'd kind of dream up some scheme and say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did X, Y, or Z? And the beauty of Mimi and myself working together is that every time one of us drops the ball, the other one's like, let's get back on the horse. What about that thing we were talking about? Yeah. It's hard to do sometimes all alone, at least for me. I, it's nice to have collaborators for a lot of these things. Somebody that just kind of spurs you on at that moment when you are getting bored or tired or you feel like you haven't found enough instant success. It's good to have that other person to kind of just give you a little nudge and tell you to, to keep going. I think that's a kind of a common theme, even with people who then look like they are lone wolves and you know conquering the world on their own. If you look closely, there's probably another person or two around them who's kind of helping them get back on the horse. So, so having a partnership helps you, like, is that how you, were you, you, you wrote, did the documentary, um, mm -hmm. uh, Giants and Size Does Matter. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was about local, uh, specifically Northwest pumpkin growers who yeah. were trying to grow the world's largest pumpkin. Mm -hmm. And we thought it would be a nice light story to tell, and it was. You know, oh, there's the there's the train. There's the train. Which, Safeco Field. Um, it's, it's, do you know uh, what the train carries these days? I've. You know what I did? Uh, you know, I'm getting way off track, but I was sitting because we work right across the street now mm -hmm. at, at the King Five Studios, right across the street from Safeco Field. I was sitting on one of these cross streets that has the the tracks coming through it and waiting as a train went by, and I saw they had a placard on the side, just number a numbered placard. I don't remember what the number was, but I I Googled it while I was sitting there waiting for the train to pass and it said uh, raw crude oil. <laughs> and I saw about I saw about three miles of black tanks going by in front of me, you know, uh, one after the other after the other. You, you, you start to think about what's right, in those right, trains, right? right? Uh, the issues see. that the issues people right. bring up. It was confetti. Um, so, okay, back to the pumpkin. Now that, I, as I was watching that movie, I was like uh -huh. chuckling because I've seen you over the years on evening and you always look like you're just having so much fun and just a prankster and a jokester, but in all the, the most wonderful ways because you can carry it off. But I was like thinking as you were filming this and you said you wanted to film something light, like were you thinking, what have I, I mean, the, it was just, I mean, I was just thinking, how did you keep it together and not laugh yeah. like the whole oh, time? Were, like, is this really happening? Are there really people doing this? There's nothing funnier than someone who is dead serious about something that other people just don't understand. Yeah. And, and what's great about a documentary is you really immerse yourself into their world and you yeah. end up, you end up like, I was rooting for different pumpkin growers as I see that <laughs> I ended up really liking all the people that we worked with even though they didn't all like each other. That was the funny part. And right. there were some really deep-seated uh, conflicts in there and friendships broken, uh, relationships, uh, romantic relationships that started and ended within the pumpkin world. Um, one couple met each other in a pumpkin chat room years ago. And um, I think they were both with other people at the time and they ended up through their love of pumpkins, found mm -hmm. a love for each other. I mean, all this human drama that you wouldn't expect, but I think if you pull back the curtain on almost anything that people do and that they're passionate about, you're going to find that. You know, so, did so you that's know really that exciting. Going, did you know that going in? Like, no. did you know? Because I, I mean, were you thinking, okay, I've got to put on my serious hat here because I think you did yeah. a really good job of not poking fun of what could be considered like 
really? Yeah. But I mean, it's a. It, I mean, I'm not. I, I was like riveted by it because <laughs> I hadn't heard anything about this. Like, yeah. As a as somebody who looks for stories, you know, do you, you know, reconcile it's, the two of like wanting to be this funny guy and like you know, and you t took it very seriously. You I, just I immerse yourself in into it, and you begin to take on. You realize how serious it is for them. For instance, the, the pumpkin growing. I mean, it's it's a life dedication and some of them burn out and they can't even look at another pumpkin after seven or eight years of competing and competing you have to babysit those pumpkins every day you have to go out there and measure the amount of water and sunlight they're getting the fertilizer the the, the seed process before they even begin growing is so intense they're trying to find the right hybrids of seeds and they're you can buy a seed it might cost hundreds of dollars for one seed because wow. it came from a champion pumpkin somewhere in the world and uh, there are matters of trust, making sure you get, you're actually getting a seed from that, not some dud. And I don't know, you, you kind of, that's the beauty of a documentary is you really get inside it and live inside it. I, I saw a David McCullough documentary and he's you know a great historian and biographer. And he talked about how when he's working on a book, you know, that's based in the 18th century, for instance, mm -hmm. he gets to live in the 18th century and not just from when he's working on or looking at the source material from that person, but all the other things he immerses himself in, just reading newspapers of the day and that sort of thing. And when you work on something like a documentary about giant pumpkins, you end up becoming a, a little bit of an honorary member of the pumpkin community. Yeah. And it's, and it could have been, you know, it was pumpkins, it could have been asparagus, it could have been cars, it could have been whatever, but whatever people are passionate about, that's where the story is. And are those the types of stories that you like to tell? Because I know you have a journalism degree, but mm -hmm. you realized that you maybe didn't want to, did you know right away that you didn't want to be the straight news guy reporter? No, in fact, you... I was really nervous about it. This is back in the mid eighties. I was working as a reporter trying to build up my journalism career. I thought maybe one day, you know, the, the ultimate would be to like work on 60 minutes or something like that. And, um, I got a call from the neighboring town's TV station and they were starting up a show called PM Magazine. And would I come in and audition to be a host? And I was really hesitant because I thought, well, that's gonna end my journalism career, you know, if I'm doing silly stuff, mm -hmm. you know? And then once I got in there and I took the job, even when I took the job, I thought, well, yeah, I can always go back to serious journalism if I have to at some point. But once you're in it for a year and you start to realize, wow, I'm not just having more fun on the job, but my life feels, I was working even harder, but my life in some way felt less stressful because I wasn't surrounded by misery all day long. Yeah. And uh, it just, it changed my whole outlook on the world in a way. And I realized, no, this is probably healthier for me, better suits my personality to be able to tell. But we still do serious stories, but not, the kind that just sort of squeeze your soul right out of you. Yeah, you know? no, I know. So that surprises me. I kind of thought you'd be like, yeah, I, I, I always knew that I wanted to do that, but you seriously no. wanted to be the 60 Minutes guy. Yeah, and I still appreciate serious journalism so much. I'm totally, you know, immersed in, in uh, political coverage. You know, I, I can't stop myself. I listen to, I listen it through my ears. I don't watch a lot of TV of these shows, but mm -hmm. I will I'll download, you know, Meet the Press and Face the Nation yeah. and this week and, and all these 
Sunday political chat shows. I listen to all of them. I haven't missed one of them for 10 years, you know. Listen to them on a podcast uh, when I'm out and about. So um, I guess you just make it look so easy that do you feel like you're fortunate to be able to do, because it's really hard to do both. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure you maybe just think, oh, I'm just me. But I mean, that's great that you took that opportunity and and went with it. And and now you can do both because I think a lot of people feel like they can't, they can't do things because they're, I don't know, like you were at that nexus in your life where you just decided to go for it. So at the end of the day, are you glad that you made that decision to go for it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's all storytelling. I mean, not just journalism and, you know, television, whatever kind of show you want to call the, the evening show. Not just that is all storytelling, but I mean, like, the whole world is basically storytelling. If you are, if you are, because um, I know you, you, you talk to the former president of Starbucks yeah. International, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Some title Howard and he, Beehan, yeah. yeah. And I mean, what, what they do to sell coffee is storytelling. Mm-hmm. There's a reason Starbucks could charge more for their coffee because there was a story to the coffee. I mean, I'm getting kind of, off on a weird tangent here but I always said like everything you see on TV that's successful is because it's telling a story successfully if it's a game show there's this beginning a middle and end yeah there's this climax to the story that you know there's everything that you need to tell a good story is out there for anything in this world that is successful Pokemon Go is a form of storytelling so I just kind of saw it all as one one thing whether it's serious journalism telling the local news or if you're doing what we're doing and I'm coming out here to Safeco Field to be a ball girl for a day. I mean, it's, it all kind of follows the same, you use the same toolbox. It's mm-hmm. just nice to have humor as one more tool in the toolbox. So what's your favorite story to tell? Like what do you, what, what gets you going like at Evening Magazine when you look at the stories and like yeah. what kind of stories do you like to tell? I love to tell, we have a lot of celebrities on the show, but I don't find celebrities to be all that interesting. The people who are most interesting are regular folks. So like the most recent one I think that I told is um, uh, Bruce and Marie Ferguson. They're a couple up in, um, in Snohomish who just had a love of sort of uh, railroad history. Bruce's great-grandfather was the founder of Snohomish, and he has a deep sense of history. And they thought, wouldn't it be cool to live in a railroad depot? And they realized there weren't really any train depots out in the area where they wanted to live. So they built one, and they built it board for board like the rail depots of the 1950s that may have wow. been around. So it's really... Um, even though the 1950s was only what now 70 years ago, I guess no, 60 Just years. My yeah. my math is horrible. Yeah, mine too. But <laughs> <laughs> but the the place feels like the turn of the century. Yeah, yeah. And it and they even put a railroad track in their front yard. And other people say, well, why? But maybe it doesn't matter why. They just wanted to, so they did it. Do you think those stories are even more relevant now with all the crazy news stuff going on? Like, I mean, because I'm yeah. attracted to those types of stories just because there's so much of the other thing. It's like, it's nice just to like, you know, it's like your favorite pillow or something, you know, like you can just watch somebody doing something different in the world and not just the same old, same old. I think so. So, And we get this sense that the world is is falling apart or it's so bad. It's, 
The problem is we get to see the bad so much more quickly and more viscerally and more often. And there's still all the good is still there too. It gets drowned out by, by the negative stories. I mean, there've always been crazy people killing other people. You know, let's (laughs) look at the Spanish Inquisition, you know, go back to Roman times or whatever. If you want to take a big picture look at things, you can put it in perspective. That's why history is so important too. Mm-hmm. If you if you have no sense of history and you're just dropped into the present, everything that you see that is bad, you're very susceptible to, to people telling you, you know, that somehow everything is getting worse and you get this sense of doom and gloom and pessimism and it's that's not helpful to anybody. Anyway. Do you find that people like really like what you're doing because I mean that's basically when I saw you like I keep bringing up the background thing but it's like when you see and you you don't have an apology for just like having fun and I think that that's you know do you have a have you found that people reach out to you a lot and say thank you for that you know because it's just a little segment and yet it's like you know, you're not seeing those kinds of fun things on the TV all the time. Yeah I think it's so heavy you know I think we kind of made a conscious effort years ago, with our show at least, that it was going to be sort of authentic fun. It wasn't going to be, we don't go for television humor, we go for like real life, the kind of stuff that just cracks us up. We'll just say, let's just put that on the show. Or or it's more about what we don't cut out of the show, where we leave in just dumb, goofy moments uh, between the hosts and, and... just trying to trying to bring some authenticity to television to what we're doing for the longest time it was all an act right like local tv was all about it was the ted baxter school of journalism you know everybody everybody's standing there sort of implying that they're they they have more information than you ever will and that they're in some way more important um or you know that authority figure kind of television and we've sort of dispensed with that i think we're more we think of ourselves more as surrogates for the viewers than as somebody, you know, spouting the information from on high down to the to the masses. And we're we're in the masses. We're part of the whole thing. And I think once you do that, you just you get bonus points right off the bat. People feel like they can relate to whatever you're doing, you know, and they can laugh right along with you, especially if you're laughing at yourself a little bit. Right now, you come from a pretty big family. I remember when we were cooking together. I think you said yeah. you were like one of like. Yeah, five, five, five. Kids, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, do you think that that? And where are you in that? Are you in the middle? I'm sort of in the middle. Age-wise, I'm sort of in the middle. Uh, I'm the fourth of five. So okay. I, I had a sister four years younger, a sister four years older, and then two brothers who are the oldest in the family, and they're Irish twins, less than a year apart. <laughs> uh, they're six and seven years older than I am. And so they were, I just kind of came to this realization recently because uh, just, I just, they all live back in Pennsylvania. And so and that's once a from. year, yeah, okay. once a year we'll get back there. And, um, and it was after the, the most recent visit, I thought I really had three father figures in my family. Because when you're, when you're young, when you're 10 years old, for instance, and your two older brothers are 16 and 17, and then you have a dad, you know, that really is like three father figures. There, mm-hmm. There's a bit of a jump in age. So I think I was lucky that way that I had those three to kind of shape and uh, and lead. And it's amazing when I look back, I didn't realize at the time what a little copycat I was, but you know, I, I 
brothers did Boy Scouts. I did Boy Scouts. I didn't think about that there was an option not to do it. You know, my my brother was a pole vaulter, so I was a pole vaulter, which is a really kind of unusual, odd little corner of the sporting world. But yeah. we just did it, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, now now his son is a pole vaulter. So it's it's funny how those things get handed down when you're in the middle of it. You don't even realize it's happening yeah. to you that you're being influenced. Yeah. So in a positive way, obviously, my daughter will be happy because uh, there's a huge age difference between I have a 16 year old daughter and uh -huh. then I have a, a, a two year old just turned three year old. So mm -hmm. and then everything in between. So, yeah, you know, she always feels like, you know, she's the one. But it's true when you come from a larger family, which there's not a lot of them around as many in, in the past. But, um, you know, the, the older ones do help with with the little ones. And and um, I'm glad that I, I think there was something on um you were on Oprah and, and, and you said that um, your your brothers laughed at you because they put too much eyeliner on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like I, oh, that just yeah. like, you know, when you come from a big family that just totally, it like keeps it real. You know, you yeah. can't get too big of a head. You My know? sister said, I thought you looked really nice. Your eyes popped. It was really pretty. It's like, okay. <laughs> was she That's being all they needed. Yeah, she was serious. She thought the. the really made your eyes sparkle. And then my brother's like, yeah, Jimmy, your eyes really sparkled. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was a funny situation. I just got a call out of the blue from a producer who had worked with us in the past. And then she went to work for the Oprah show and she said, hey, can you be on the show? And I was like, I didn't know, understand. I had done nothing that would warrant me being on <laughs> Oprah. And. <laughs> She said, well, you did this thing where you gave away stuff for free as one of your pieces. And and we took all kinds of crap, like an old washing machine and just everything you can imagine, a giant Rolodex, a puppy. And I had all these items gathered and I stood out in the middle of uh, Green Lake and said, you know, free, you know, free items. And people would just, a lot of them walking by, they think there's a catch. Some people stopped though, and they were interested and so Oprah had borrowed that idea for her show. She did one of her topics that day. It was about freebies. Uh -huh. They experimented and they did some weird things. They put, set up a table of freebies in, in our office. Uh, another thing that was sort of with an undercover camera. And I guess I said a few things that uh, humored Oprah. So she's like, have that guy come on the show. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. That's but, like a huge compliment. Did you come up with that idea for the show? Uh, just for my piece out in, at Green Lake. But then they, because we had this connection, the producer had worked with us before in the past. Now she was working with Oprah. She was kind of keeping an eye on our show. And she, I think she saw the piece I did at Green Lake. Mm -hmm. It's weird how stuff just connects, yeah, you know. And then, yeah. and then uh, suggested to Oprah they do some undercover camera, giving away free things. And then once again, they came to us because she had that connection, I guess. And somehow I ended up, next thing you know, so, I'm so flying out to Chicago. Yeah, so usually, you know, people that are in the media and any kind of television, you know, they have to scratch and claw and they have, so it sounds like you've had a lot of things. Have you had to scratch and claw that much or has it just yeah, your creativity? Like there is scratching and claw. No, I'm not. <laughs> not scratching and claw. I use that in a positive term, just like being right. a scrapper. You oh, know? I think like, it is a positive. You know? Yeah. But, but yeah, I wonder sometimes, have I worked hard enough? Um, I definitely work hard when I'm in the job. I, I, I can hear the footsteps approaching from behind me, getting ready to, to nibble on my carcass and take my job. Or as somebody said once early in my career, they said, uh, you see that 747 flying overhead? 
that's the number of candidates that were looking for your job when you got it. So just remember, every time you see that plane fly over, that's the number of people who are hovering around your job. I I hope that wasn't your boss that said that to you. Uh, I think it was. Oh my gosh. So so you're aware of the the privilege it is to do what you do. Yes, and nothing pisses me off more than people who waste, they squander the opportunity to come into somebody's living room and take over somebody's time or thousands of people's time. You better be doing something with it, you know? It's yeah. it it just nothing offends me more than the lazy like, you know, celebrity appearance on some some talk show or something like that. There was a famous interview with David Letterman and Rolling Stone. David Letterman's kind of one of my heroes, I think, especially his early, really innovative stuff on NBC. And uh, he he had a quote that was something like that, that something similar to what I'm saying, that it just, it upsets him so much if somebody shows up, props their feet up, sits on his couch, and they're like, okay, here I am, I'm your celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not yeah. doing anything for anyone. That's not entertaining, it's not interesting. Since you do a lot of interviews with celebrities, do you find that that's how it is these days too, or do you feel like it's fifty-fifty, no. or just yeah, kind of it's like... probably you know they're the, they're a cross section of humanity, just like the rest of humanity, and so yeah. you get you get the lazy ones, and you get the <laughs> you get the you know the ones who've been in show business the longest seem yeah. to get it that yeah. if they are there with a few exceptions, I won't mention names, Tommy Lee Jones. Oh my gosh. But, um, <laughs> well, who has surprised you? Like as one of the ones that's still a whippersnapper and like just, just a celebrity that you didn't expect it and thought that, um, um, you know, like. I think, you know, I did, uh, I did uh, Betty White. I did Betty White. Oh, Betty White. Sounds like, yeah, a, yeah. hey, yeah. hey, did you, hey, hey, I, hey, stop bragging. Hey, I did Betty White. <laughs> Back in college, oh, I was 17, she was 48. It was a beautiful (laughs) night I'll never forget. Uh, Betty White is like the old showbiz pro, like she understands that the interview is part of the performance for a celebrity or an entertainer, that that's just as much a part of their job as the appearance on the sitcom or the game show or the movie or whatever. So. The, and the older guys kind of get that, I think. They really do. Henry Winkler was another one who was just like, what do you need from me? You know, and I, I did an interview with Henry Winkler where I said, you know, you're, you're known as like the, the nicest guy in Hollywood. And people will tell you that over and over about him. And I said, so I think for our interview, and he goes, you want me to act like an asshole? I said, yes, <laughs> absolutely. And so that's what he did in a charming and funny way for the rest of the interview. So I said, well, let me ask you about your, you know, your status as one of the nicest guys in Hollywood. And he instantly was like, well, that was a stupid question. What was that all about? Nicest guy. And he just immediately went after me. And, you know, he was working it. He was working it. That's awesome that you did that because that seems a little scary to me to have them be like, you know, confrontational. Like you want to seem like you're getting all the, you know, ingratiating themselves. But that's how you take risks where you're not, you're not trying to look like that person that's like got it all together all the time. Yeah, I don't worry about failing. As anyone who's seen our show will know. That's because the second you do that, you failed. If the second you've decided you're afraid to, or you're going to control any chance to to fail, I mean, those are the most, and maybe they're humiliating to me when they happen, but even the failure can be really interesting to the audience. So you might as well 
make it interesting. So do you have any kind of mantra that you say to yourself, like when you go into something and you know, you know, you're gonna probably fail, or mm -hmm. that you, you know, you know that this is a big thing for you, and that you're just you're not gonna succumb to the fears that are inside of you. Like, what do you, what do you say? Uh, just act drunk and keep rolling. Just yeah, uh, <laughs> come on, we're or, not all Irish. Or, <laughs> I know we are, but or, or be drunk and keep rolling. That's even go. better. That's even more authentic. Um, I mean, do you no. just think to yourself? It's just, hey, you put I'm on that coat it. of armor, you know, when you go out and do something a little risky, you just have to, you just have to realize nobody's going to get hurt. That's, in a most cases. Of, that's a good way of doing it. But you, you say that, but the backstory behind that is that you do the work before to prepare. So if you're going to go into it, you're not, you know. Yeah, but there does, even when you do the work, you do still have to have an element. It's once again, that authenticity thing. People don't want to watch something fake on TV. So you have to... You have to open it up to whatever's going to happen and be ready to, to live off of that. I can't tell a joke to save my life, but I can find the funny in the moment, you know, that, and that's, I guess, if I've got anything going for me, that's, <laughs> that's it. I'd way rather, I'd way rather be sent out somewhere without a script than with a script because I'll screw up the script and then there's a, there's an expectation. The script is in front of you. Yeah. But um, if you don't have that, you can't mess it up, right? You can, yeah. You can only create whatever on that blank canvas. Well, I, I guess where I'm getting at is like the difference between winging it because, you know, my mom has criticized me in the past, like, because I'm like, I'm just going to wing it. And, you know, the thing is. But you're that, good at winging it. Well, so that's a strength. Play it, right? Yes. But there is that other part of me, too, that's like, you know, there's that. I think there's like you know, to be completely organized, you know, there's that sabotaging moment where you yeah. don't prepare for it. I mean, this is getting right. a little deep into my own psyche, but you know how there's that. And I think a lot of people are like this. It's the preparation like, is the safety net. Yes. So that you can do so the acrobatics can, up above it, yes, right? Thank With, you. There yes, you go. There you go. It's but, an analogy. I'm going to add a clown into the whole analogy <laughs> too. Perfect. Make a whole circus. See, now, that, now I'm theme. feeling I'm feeling safe because for me it's like I have to have that chaos going. It, well, I remember when we when we did a thing on New Day Northwest when I was filling in, and I remember we were talking about what are we going to do here, and you were like, I. So are you just going to kind of wing it? I remember we had a conversation like this, and you were very comfortable with the idea that it wasn't going to be very structured, right? Yeah, that that's that's what I like. So you got that part of the you've got that same brain defect yeah. I have. I know that's probably why I saw you know when I see that I like that because I think it's 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 authentic, it's real, it's genuine. Whereas when I, you see the other thing, it's like you know it's it's like can we just have some real? Can we just have people that are just doing and that's what appeals to me so mm -hmm. I mean I really appreciate you coming out and chatting with me and oh, I love and it and you know what we've been sitting in the dugout <laughs> here at Safeco Field and we neither one of us has spit yet so <laughs> well hang um, on hang on let me work one up yeah that's a little dry um <laughs> want to try I one just, I think I just spit like laughing but okay sure go ahead you gotta work it up Oh, you did it for real. Would my sons be proud? That was real. Although that's that any player coming in here and seeing that would be totally embarrassed for you. That so, is not you did not work up so a good loogie. So is this the home dugout for the? Are this we on is the, the home side no, uh, no. This is the. Oh, I should know that. Uh, I thought this was the 
visitor's side, but now I'm confused. I'm, I'm not, okay. I, you know, I love Let's baseball. Just, I love it when they win. Yeah, it's the visitor like, side. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say it. Nobody can see it, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so this is a pretty amazing field here. You know, we've got it. We've got it pretty good here in Seattle. Oh, it's Wouldn't beautiful. Yeah. And we've got a beautiful day too in the summer blue sky. I wish everybody could see what we're seeing right now, looking out over this incredible stadium, blue skies, largest uh, video screen in Major League Baseball. Really? At you right there. Yes. For sure? Yeah, that's what I've heard. Largest HD screen wow. in Major League Baseball. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. So have you tried the food here? Because I know they have like excellent. awesome chef, yeah, uh, Ethan excellent. Stoll. And they raise the bar year after year. It's just incredible. And they even have a garden out here so that they can have freshly grown herbs and things like that from their own oh. garden. It's out past the outfield. Okay. People don't. People think that's a joke, but it's actually true. And the, the chefs use it for the actual food that they serve yeah. the, the fans. Yeah, that's where they grow the hot dogs. That's where they <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being here with me. I really appreciate it. What Do you have you anything new coming up? Are you going to do any more documentaries about maybe nah, hot dogs you know, the, and how you, you really, grow them? Or like, <laughs> you know, the maybe, biggest hot dog in the entire maybe world? Maybe that's it, the <laughs> biggest hot dog. Um, no, you know, it, it, to do a documentary, you really have to. One, It was a great learning lesson for me to do that one with Mimi because you realize you have to devote your life to that for some time. Yeah. And I'm not ready to do that. Uh, I, I do a lot of uh, charity auctioneering. That's a whole oh, yeah. other, it's like a creative side to my life that I didn't know I would have. And and it's so much fun Try to trying to reinvent what auctioneers do. Um, you still have to raise a lot of money for whoever you're working for, for, for these charities. And that's What's a great feeling. What's the most feeling. money that you raise for? What's oh most money you boy. I, I think about a half million dollars wow. in some of the bigger, some of the bigger ones, but I'll so do, I'll do little ones with back? schools too. Um, do you feel like that's I give back, but it's also a profession. You know, it's, it's a second career for me too. But yes, I, uh, I'm very reasonably priced <laughs> <laughs> because I really enjoy, I really enjoy the effect that it has on the organizations, you know, that I work with. But that's, I think that's, uh, that's that my train. train with the crude oil? I think that's my train. <laughs> okay. It's the crude oil train. I'll be riding that to the uh, tar sands <laughs> okay, of well, uh, Alberta. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for coming out and I will definitely catch you later. All right. Jim Dever, reporter, co-host of King Five's Evening Magazine, producer, writer, documentary filmmaker, auctioneer, Elvis impersonator, and whatever else he dreams up outside the cookie cutter. I'm Carolyn Osorio, a.k.a. Pippi Mama, and until next time, what are you going to do today to live your life outside the cookie cutter? <laughs>